This Parsha podcast is dedicated in loving memory of John Magnus. May his soul be elevated in heaven. It's Parsha's Yisro. It's the Parsha that we read about the most significant event in all of human history, the revelation at Sinai, when the nation is temporarily catapulted to a level of prophecy, and they listen in to the prophecy that the Almighty conveys to Moshe. From this moment onward, all of Jewish history and all of human history is forever altered. The Parsha is named after Yisro Jethro, Moshe's father-in-law. And it begins when he surfaces with Moshe's wife and sons. And they have a lavish welcoming committee. And Moshe regales him with stories about the Exodus. And he offers sacrifices and there's a festive banquet. And then he has his grand judicial restructuring. He doesn't like the way the system is working. Moshe is answering the questions and resolving the disputes from morning to night. He instead proposes a hierarchical system. Let the easy questions be answered by lower judges in lower courts, and only the more significant, difficult questions should come your way. His proposal is adopted, and Jethro leaves to go back to his homeland to recruit his family to join the nation. The Parsha then talks about the preparation for Sinai. The nation is going to be offered the Torah, and they're going to be told about the consequences thereof. What does it mean to be the chosen nation? The nation accepts the terms, and we have the most groundbreaking earth-shattering event in all of human history, the revelation at Sinai, with a mountain trembling and the mountain engulfed in fire and smoke. The Almighty descends, and the nation is able to hear the Ten Commandments from the mouth of God, the first two from God directly, and the final eight with Moshe serving as God's mouthpiece. This is an incredible parsha. It's a pivotal, transitional parsha beforehand. We weren't really the Jewish nation. We were designated to be the Jewish nation. We were in wait. We were the heir apparent, so to speak, to be the nation of God. But at Sinai, we forged an eternal bond with the Almighty, and we became His people. And I want to focus on chapter 19, which is the run-up to Sinai. It's very interesting how the proposal of accepting the Torah is presented, how it's framed, how it's couched. The verse tells us that Moshe ascended to God, and God tells him, So shall you speak to the house of Jacob, and this is what you should say to the children, to the sons of Israel. What should you tell them? What's the message that you tell them before Sinai? You saw that that I did, that God did, to Egypt. I carried you as if you were on the wings of eagles, and I brought you to me. And now, if you listen to my voice, if you guard and adhere to my covenant, you will be to me a cherished people, a cherished nation above all other nations, for all the land is mine. And you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words 
that you should speak to the sons of Israel. So Moshe is told that he has to convey a message from God to the nation. And the message is really the, the plan, the proposal to accept the Torah, to hearken to the Mighty's words, and thereby become the cherished people, the holy nation, the kingdom of priests. Now Rashi tells us, of course, that every one of these words and every statement here is replete with meaning. So it starts off by saying, so shall you speak to the house of Jacob, and so shall you say to the sons of Israel. So Rashi says he's speaking to the men and to the women, and to the women he speaks with a more gentle posture, and to the men you speak a little bit more tough, and you tell them, you saw what I did to Egypt. This is not a tradition that you have, some sort of idea that was perpetuated in your family. This is not words that you're hearing. This is not testimony that you're relying upon. Oh no, you saw it with your own eyes. Remember, the sign of revelation is 50 days after the Exodus. So these people who are accepting the Torah, who are accepting the terms of Sinai, they themselves witnesses all the incredible miracles that happened with the Exodus. You were gathered from all of Egypt, as if on the wings of eagles. Rashi tells us what that means is, is that the nation was scattered throughout the land of Goshen in Egypt, And in one hour, they were all coalesced into Ramses. That's a miracle. And like an eagle, they might have carried you, and you soared above the heavens, so to speak. The rest of the birds, when they fly, they have to carry their young in their hands because they're worried that some bird that comes higher is going to swoop down and grab their young. But the eagle, no, it puts it on its shoulders, on its on its wings, because it's worried only about the hunters from below, Rashi tells us. Similarly, the Almighty says, I'm going to worry, so to speak, about the hunters. I'm going to intermediate between you and the Egyptians and all the projectiles that the Egyptians sent into the cloud, the Almighty absorbed. So the Almighty is kind of telling them about the relationship that they forged. You, you personally witnessed the care, the compassion, the love the Almighty displayed to you, the might, the power, the dominion of God. This is not something that you heard. This is not some sort of testimony they have to believe. You witnessed this yourself. And then verse 5, we have the actual pitch. And now, if you listen to God, you accept His Torah, you'll be a cherished nation. Now you have to accept, Rashi tells us, The beginning is difficult. It's an acceptance. And you're accepting upon yourself a yoke, a responsibility. And it's, at least at the beginning, very difficult. But after you accept it, after you buy in, then things will get more pleasant afterwards. And if you listen, and if you guard the covenant, you will be a treasured people. We'll have a special relationship, like a monarch, like a king who has a special treasure house where they keep all their gold and all their silver and all their precious gems. You too will be my precious ones. 
of all the nations, you'll be the one that I cherish most. And don't say that I'll only cherish you because you're the only ones I got. No. Tili kala aretz. I own everything. All the nations are mine, but you will be my treasured ones. And you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And uh, the pitch ends. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So what do we have? Sinai hasn't happened yet. The revelation has not happened. The nation's there. They're at the mountain. And they're being offered a, a proposal. And Moshe's told, this is what you have to convey to the nation. Talk about what happened in Egypt and lay out the terms of this proposed covenant between the Almighty and the people. They'll be a cherished nation. They'll be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, if they accept and they adhere and they guard and they observe. But it's interesting, at the very end of the message that Moshe is told to convey to the nation, it says, these are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. This is the pitch deck of Torah. This is the sales pitch. This is the meeting of the minds that's going to sign the line that's dotted. So obviously, this is a very noteworthy sequence. This is when the nation agreed to Torah. This is when the nation agreed to adhere to all the laws. This is when the Almighty says, okay, if you do that, I will commit myself to you as well. And Moshe's told, this is what we have to tell them. We've got to tell them women something and the men something and talk about Egypt and, and the wings of eagles. And then if you accept the Torah, if you listen, if you guard it, you'll be a cherished, precious, treasured, and cherished nation, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Now Rashi tells us that the description of what Moshe should say ends with the words, these are the words that you should tell them. What does that mean? So Rashi says, lo pachos, lo yoser. No more and no less. The Almighty speaking to Moshe. Moshe, you're a prophet. Go speak to the Jewish people and tell them the terms of this deal. What's the bargain here? And tell them these words, no more, no less. Don't add and don't subtract. Moshe has given a script here. This is the script that the Almighty wants you to read before the nation. And you cannot ad-lib. You cannot improvise. Don't add anything. Don't offer any commentary. You have no poetic license to, to, to improvise, to ad-lib, to add some other thoughts of your own. This is the pitch. These are the words that you should say to the nation. Don't edit them at all. Don't add and don't subtract. Now, if you think about it, this is kind of bizarre. Which prophet, which legitimate prophet would ever consider to edit the Word of God? Certainly the most capable, gifted, talented, loftiest of all prophets, the most the, the, the consummate prophet that we have is Moshe. Which prophet would ever consider altering a prophecy? This question is asked by Maharal. Wait a minute. Moses told what to say, verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. And God has to warn him, this is what you say, don't add and don't subtract. No prophet, no legitimate prophet, 
would ever consider to alter the word of God. So why does the Almighty need to warn Moshe to remind him, this is what you say, this to the exclusion of anything else? Of course Moshe won't add anything on his own. This is an interesting question. And the Maharal gives an interesting answer. He says that the nation is being offered a deal that is binding for all eternity. You accept the Torah, you accept all the laws, you accept everything that's included in what the Almighty has in Torah, and you can never wiggle out of it. You are forever committed to this corpus of law. And nothing you can do can free you of that responsibility. This is not one of those 99-year leases. The Almighty is proposing a binding, eternal deal. He is going to give us his Torah, and we're going to commit ourselves to it, to him, forever. And the consequences of this arrangement are enormous. We're going to be his chosen nation. We're going to be the cherished people, the kingdom of priests. We're going to represent him in this world. We'll, we'll be his emissaries here. And the money promises that he's going to love us. And he's going to care for us. And we're going to have a direct line to him. And he's going to dwell amongst us. And he's going to give us the land of Canaan, the land that's most auspicious for connection and for spiritual greatness. And we promise to be at the vanguard of the movement to restore the Almighty to his throne. We pledge to fix this world. The world is broken. The world ignores its creator. We pledge to remove the disparity between this world and the spiritual world. We pledge to do whatever we can to make this world indistinguishable from heaven. And the money says, we're going to have the tools to do that. We're going to be given whatever it takes to complete what Abraham began. On us, it, of course, demands total commitment. And the money says that he's in as well. So this is a very consequential proposal. And the pitch, the message, the words that Moshe says to the nation, they have to be very precise. Don't add and don't subtract. And the reason why this needs to be stipulated is because what would happen if Moshe would add some mustard to the pitch, he would embellish it a bit. You know, they always advise salespeople, you make your pitch and don't sell past the sale. Once you make your pitch, you keep quiet. And the first to break the silence loses. The first to blink, you play chicken. The first to blink loses. Get their attention. Do I have your attention? Are you interested? Coffee is for closers. They always train the salespeople. Don't belabor the pitch. So Moshe has been told here, don't embellish the pitch. 
Don't add anything beyond what the Almighty says. This is what you say, no more, no less. Don't alter the message. Don't doctor it. Don't improve upon it. Don't try to make it more persuasive. Say this, no more, no less. And the question, of course, is why not? Don't we know? Isn't there a principle that everyone needs to be persuaded in their own way? Everyone needs to be spoken to in a way that resonates with them? Why is it improper for Moshe to adapt it, to make it a bit more persuasive? Why, in fact, is Moshe warned to not add some messaging that he feels would maybe garner some more interest? Why is this the pitch? No more, no less. Why must Moshe not oversell it? So the morale says something really interesting. If Moshe embellished the pitch, and he persuaded them, and he sweetened the deal for them, the Jews may be able to wiggle out of it. They may be able to extricate themselves from the deal by saying, well, it wasn't an arm's length transaction. We were hoodwinked by a slick sales guy. We we got suckered into it. Moshe talked us into it. God warns Moshe, this is what you say, and you don't add anything else. This is the pitch, and the pitch comes from God. Don't make it any more persuasive, because then you're imperiling the eternality of this agreement. That's the answer that Maharal gives this very interesting question. I heard another answer which I found to be very powerful. You know, we're we're reading about the Torah. This is our nation's heritage. This is the most prized possession that we have. This is our national pastime. This is what we've been obsessed with for millennia. And here we see, in these few short sentences, we see how it was sold to us, how it was presented to us. I heard another explanation as to why Moshe was not allowed to embellish the pitch. This I heard from Rabbi Berkowitz. He says something fascinating. Torah is not something that you need to sell. You don't need to take anything external to Torah and say, well, this is why you should do it. Many years ago, I recorded a series of podcasts where I offered like 20 or so reasons why we should study Torah. Maybe I made a mistake, I just realized. You don't need to sell Torah. There's no sales job that can compete with Torah itself, with the piercing truth of Torah. The verse tells us, taste and see that God is good. If you want to experience something, there's a succulent steak. You want to experience it. I could describe it to you and talk about how it's made and talk about the cut and talk about how we present it and, 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 and how we embellish it. 
the real way to experience it is to taste it, to experience it for yourself, to see what it's all about. If someone just experiences Torah, provided that they are receptive to it, you just experience it, you see, live with what the Almighty is telling telling you to do, what he's proposing for you, that is the best sales pitch that there is. This is a bit of a different idea. Not that there's something potentially harmful about Moshe embellishing the sales pitch, but no sales pitch can actually eclipse in persuasive power just tasting the Almighty's Torah. What is the best sales pitch for Torah? Just experiencing pure, unadulterated Torah. You see a system of living that works, that matches our physiology, that allows us to maximize our potential. A way of life of of clarity, of truth. A way of life that gives us meaning and purpose. A way of life that connects us to our roots. A way of life that fits with what we feel on an existential level. All of us, we have a soul. And that soul won't be at ease if it is unfed, if it's unaddressed, if it's allowed to languish. And we have a whole system of living in the Torah, as outlined in the Torah, that's designed to connect us with our eternal halves. It's designed to connect us with our Creator. And even though we don't necessarily recognize this, what we all truly crave is to have a connection with the Almighty, to have a touch point with eternity. This is what we're all thirsty for. This is what we're all after. And yes, we seek distractions and we want to replace with other things. But ultimately, we won't be at peace with ourselves until we have a connection with our own inborn eternality. And the Almighty gives us the Torah. And it's a whole beautiful system of living in a way that elevates us, elevates our physical existence and our spiritual existence and gives us a direct connection to the Almighty. That's the most persuasive sales pitch. Now, it is true that not everyone's ready to hear that. The Jewish people, they spent hundreds of years in Egypt before they were ready to hear that message. They had to witness the miracles of the Exodus, and they had to be eating manna for a couple of days already, and they had to witness the miracles that happened with the war against Amalek and the splitting of the sea and the death of the firstborn, etc. But once they were ready to hear that, once they were primed for that message, what's the sale? The sale is just the Torah that makes you a cherished people, a holy nation, elevated, more enlightened, with a connection to the Almighty. That's the sale. You'll notice that when Jethro comes, Moshe regales him with stories. Rashi tells us, chapter 18, verse 8, because he wants to draw his heart to Torah. 
Jethro did not witness those miracles. So he wasn't ready for that pitch. And therefore, Moshe had to encourage him, had to persuade him to be ready for the message of Torah. But once someone's ready, once you have their attention, once they're open, they are receptive to Torah, they are primed for it, the actual cell, it's just Torah itself, no more, no less. If someone's heart is open to this, if they're willing to be receptive, if they're impressionable, if you've removed the prejudices and the childish notions and the various immaturities that we have, the various biases that we have, Torah sells itself. The life of Torah is, is, is congruent with our physiology. It's a system that makes our life work on all cylinders, in every area. We live a life that's bursting with purpose and with meaning. I had a conversation yesterday with a friend of mine, and he was asking me, in, in, in your community, do you still use matchmakers? So I said, not only in our community do we still use matchmakers, but in every community they do. Just not necessarily some third party, a person. It's an app. It's some sort of service. Everyone's coming on to realize that this is just a better way to do things. I was thinking about this. You know, if, if you grow up in a Torah community, you're going to know your neighbors. You'll be able to trust your neighbors. Your kids could go play with the neighbors. The community will care for each other. And in our community, anytime someone has a baby in the community, the rest of the people will make them dinners for a month, for two months after they had a baby. And these things are not out of the ordinary. They're just self-understood. If you're part of this community, you're, you're not just living by yourself. I wonder what percentage of Americans know their neighbors well enough to talk about them and to, you know, just know anything besides their, their name and maybe what they do, but have them over and really feel like you're, you're living in an active community. That's part of our system. Our system is designed that you have to live in a community and we're religiously mandated to care for each other and to care for the, for the poor and for the widows and for the orphans. It's a system that works. Just yesterday, we got an email about someone that we know who was going through some difficult times and some health issues. And they're having a hard time financially. A few calls and like that, they raised thousands and thousands of dollars for this person. Where, where else does this happen? Where else do you have a community that cares for each other with such commitment and, and diligence? This is all baked into the Torah. And it's a wonderful way to live. You don't need to sell Torah. It's a system that forces you to become a better person and a more sensitive person and a more caring person and a more elevated person. 
It forces you to live a life of, of, of meaning and purpose. And, and you're nudged into having a relationship with the Almighty. And you do these incredible mitzvos that elevate you. It just sells itself. It itself is supremely desirable. And nothing you could say about it externally, none, none of that can match what Torah itself actually is. This is a very powerful lesson. You know, some of us, we probably take Torah for granted. We may think that Torah, well, it's a system of laws. It's a corpus of laws. It's got some stories. It's got some rituals. When the Imari comes to present us with the Torah, all he says is, try it. Try it. You'll be a cherished people. You'll be a kingdom of priests. Everyone's elevated. Everyone can live on a higher level of living, a higher level of consciousness. You'll be a holy nation. All it takes is to guard the laws and listen to the word of God. Try it and see for yourself. We end, of course, every Parsha Parkas with a question. And this question relates to the Ten Commandments. Of course, they are the centerpiece of our Parsha. And there's an interesting and fun question that we can ponder that I think if we study it, it will give us more insight into this wonderful gift of Torah that we are lucky enough to have. The Midrash tells us that the Almighty offered the Torah to the Jewish people, but he also offered the Torah to all the other nations. This is a Midrash that we've spoken about in the past. And it tells us the Almighty came to not just the Jews, but to all the other nations. He went to Asav and said, Asav, the nation of Asav, do you want the Torah? And they said, well, what does it contain? What are the details? What are the laws? Thou shalt not murder. Murder? That's our second name. Don't you know that Isaac declared about Asaph that his hands are the hands of Asaph? He engages the world with physicality. And don't you know in Genesis chapter 27, the verse says that Asaph will live on his sword? The terms of Torah are unacceptable to us. And then they might have went to other nations, the nations of Ammon and Moab. You remember Ammon and Moab, they were born to Lot, to Lot, from his daughters on two successive nights. And they might offer the Torah to these nations, Ammon and Moab. Well, what does it say? What are the laws? What are the details? And they might have responded with another one of the Ten Commandments, to refrain from adultery and other illicit relationships. And these nations responded, well, that's not acceptable to us. After all, don't you know the origin story of our people? This is where we come from. We cannot repudiate it. The Torah is not for us. And the man went to the Ishmaelites. And he said, Ishmaelites, do you want the Torah? Well, what's in it? Don't steal. Don't steal. What do you mean? Before Ishmael was born, the verse says that he'll be a wild man. His hand is always in someone else's pockets. And so the pattern continued. Every nation, they were offered the Torah. They asked for the fine print, for the details. And they might have revealed to them their unique Achilles heel, and they rejected it. But they might come to the Jews. 
and he offered Torah, and the nation accepted it. So it's a very interesting dialogue in the Midrash, but there's a problem. The Jewish people are not the only ones who have Torah. We're not the only ones who have mitzvos. It's true that we have the most mitzvos. We have 613 mitzvos, 248 positive mitzvos. What we must do, and 365 negative mitzvos, what we must refrain from, but everyone else also has some Torah and also has some mitzvos. The Noahites, Gentiles, anyone who is a descendant of Noah is obligated by the seven Noahide laws. These mitzvos are universal. And what are these seven mitzvos? Number one, not to eat a limb from a living animal. Number two, to not blaspheme. Number three, not to steal. Number four, to have a system of laws. Number five, not to murder. Number six, to not engage in idolatry. And number seven, to not engage in adultery or other illicit relationships. And you'll notice that the examples that the Midrash tells us about the nations of Esav and Ammon and Moab and, and Ishmael, the laws that they were told that these are the details of the Torah, all three of those laws are laws that they are anyhow obligated in whether or not they accept the Torah. They're all included in the universal seven laws. Asav, well, what's the details of the Torah? Not to murder. Well, that's one of the seven Noahide laws. Ishmael, not to steal. Well, that's one of the seven Noahide laws. Amon and Moab, to not engage in adultery or other illicit relationships, that's already included in the seven Noahide laws. So this whole dialogue seems kind of moot. These nations were already obligated by these laws, irrespective of their acceptance of the Torah. So why would these laws be grounds for them to object to accept the Torah if they're anyhow obligated by it even beforehand? Now, this question can be posed from the opposite vantage point. You know, the Jewish nation, we get the Torah and we get the Ten Commandments. And these are ostensibly ten new laws. But some of them have some overlap with the seven Noahide laws. And the Jewish people, they entered Sinai as Noahides. And they were already pre-committed to the seven universal laws. So in those mitzvot that we were already obligated in, what exactly is novel about them being told to us again in the Ten Commandments. So, of course, some of the Ten Commandments are brand new and are not included in the seven Noahide laws. So, like uh, to guard the Shabbos, to honor the Shabbos, to honor your parents, not covet, etc. But murder and theft and illicit relationships, these laws are already on the books before Sinai. So what novelty is being conveyed at Sinai with the Ten Commandments, with the Decalogue in these laws? So this is an interesting question, a fun question, and I saw a variety of answers, similar answers, that I think will illuminate for us, A, what Torah is, and B, what the nature of the acceptance of Sinai of the details, of the terms of the agreement, 
What was that all about? So on a basic level, we know that the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, on one level, on one dimension, there are ten laws. But Rashi tells us that if you count all the words of the Ten Commandments, you'll discover that they are exactly 613 words. And the reason why is because they encapsulate all of Torah. These Ten Commandments are really ten categories of laws. So maybe when it says, thou shall not murder, the Gentiles, the Noahides, are already on the hook. They're already committed to that law in its more narrow, minimalist, isolated, discrete sense. But at Sinai, they're told, thou shalt not murder, in the more maximalist, expanded sense, as a category of laws. And for that, they were not ready. Yes, they are pre-obligated ahead of time with the headline mitzvah, but not all the details, not all the subcategories that come along with the details that come along with the Ten Commandments. As an example, the Talmud tells us that whitening someone's face in shame is tantamount to murder. And just as we have to die to not murder someone else, we have to die to not embarrass someone else. This is a more expanded definition of murder. And this is what the nation of Asaph was unwilling to accept. That's one idea. A second idea comes courtesy of the Ardidalyahu. He talks about the difference between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. If someone refrains from murdering, that could be done in two ways. It's possible to really hate someone and really, ah, oh, if only I could kill them, oh, to be angry at them and to disdain them and to abhor them and to really be seething and rage towards them. But after all, the Torah says, well, you can't do it. And I want to listen to the Almighty. I got to obey the laws. But if I could, I would just rip them apart, right? There is that attitude that is potentially feasible. And something like that, well, Technically, they're, they're not, they haven't committed murder. At Sinai, we were encouraged to not just follow the law and just, you know, dot the I's and cross the T's and make sure that we are conforming to the law. The Midrash tells us that we accepted the laws in a way that they permeated us, and, and the theory behind it was it absorbed and digested. The objective of the Ten Commandments wasn't just that we made sure that we're living in compliance with the laws, but that the message of the laws and the intent behind it really fundamentally changes who we are.
that the Torah should be part of our essence. And what the Torah tells us, not to kill someone, there's a reason why. It's because the man wants us to love other people and to care for them and to be invested in them and to want for their advancement. Yes, the nations, the Noahides, they're obligated right ahead of time not to murder. But what does Asaph say? What do the nation of Asaph say? This is who we are. This is our identity. Don't you know what was said about Asaph? He'll live on his sword, the hands, the physicality, the violence is the violence of Asaph. Maybe we won't do any murder. But this is who we are. We're a violent people. Torah is not for us. There's a third idea. This idea her courtesy of my grandfather, blessed memory. Every expert in their field develops sensitivity to the small things. So if you're, let's say, a music aficionado and the beat is slightly off or the the piano is not perfectly tuned or the guitar is a little bit not uh, perfectly calibrated. So most people, they won't tell the difference. You know, it sounds good or it doesn't sound good, but they won't be able to tell the nuances and the subtleties. But if you're a real expert, when something's slightly off, you could sense it. And every person in the area of their expertise, they can notice the small details that are off. The the movie critic and the wine snob. Oh, the nose doesn't really have that full body. And most people, you know, they it's either good, it's not good, but they, they can't really pick up. They don't perceive the subtleties. Like if you watch gymnastics at the Olympics. You have to be a real expert to see if they, if they really landed, they stuck the landing. Only the real experts can differentiate in the, in the absolute fine, minute subtleties that separate the various different participants in said, uh, said activity. At Sinai, the nation was elevated to a level where we became spiritually sensitive. We became sensitive to not just the the broad strokes of Torah, of the laws, but no, it's, it's all the subtleties as well. As an example, my grandfather noted that after the Ten Commandments, there are three mitzvahs at the end of our parsha. A, that we cannot make the cherubs atop the ark out of silver, and we can't make them four. There there can only be two cherubs, not four. The second mitzvah is that when we make an altar out of stone, we cannot use metal implements to cut the stone. And three, there has to be a ramp up the altar and not steps, so that way the inner ledge, so to speak, of the kohanim should not be exposed as they ascend the top of the altar. 
So my grandfather, blessed memory, noted that these are the three subtle mitzvos. We know that there are three cardinal sins, idolatry, adultery, and various other illicit relationships, and murder. And of course, the headline mitzvah of all these three is what we know. But there are also subtleties in these mitzvahs. If you make cherubs and you do it a little bit differently than the Almighty instructs you to do it, he says, make it out of gold. He says, gold's a little expensive. I'll make it out of silver. That is tantamount to idolatry to a person whose expertise is spiritual matters. And using metal implements, tools that are designed to shorten the life of a person, when it comes to the altar, the altar that's there to extend the life of a person, we don't use metal implements. Why? Because that has a little scintilla of a feeling of murder. And finally, to not ascend to the altar with steps, instead to use a ramp, to not spread your legs out so much that part of your body that's typically covered may be exposed, that's a subtlety, the most fine and nuanced subtlety of illicit relationships. This is the product of Sinai. At Sinai, the nation became experts in matters of spirituality. That was the result of the Ten Commandments. And yes, they came into it, and they were already obligated by the headline mitzvos to not murder, to not do idolatry, to not steal, to not commit adultery. But at Sinai, the nation became spiritually sensitive. These are three answers that would explain why the Gentiles objected, the various nations objected to the Sinai revelation. Even though they were already obligated by the core laws, but either the subcategories or the change in identity or the nuances That is all part of the Sinai Revelation. But I think for us, it offers a fundamental new insight into what exactly we signed up for at Sinai. The Ten Commandments, they're really categories of laws. And by the way, the commentaries tell us that even the 613 laws are also categories of laws. We signed up to have our life governed by God. In every area, we asked, what does the Almighty expect of me? What are the instructions for living that are present in this given scenario? That's what Esav and and Ishmael and Amon and Moab, that's what they were scared of. We'll keep the laws, but that's it. We're out beyond that. And that's what we accepted. Number two, we accepted not just the system of laws, but we 
are committed to try to integrate those principles into who we are. God says don't murder. That doesn't mean to sheath your sword and harbor your enmity. It doesn't even mean to just avoid shaming other people publicly. It means to find room in your heart to love every other person, to care for them, to care for their advancement, to pray for them, to celebrate their wins, to be invested in them, to completely rewire your identity. That's part of what happened at Sinai. And finally, as my grandfather said, Sinai was about becoming an expert in spirituality, to become a kanyashenti of spirituality, where we notice all the small things, all the subtle things, all the nuances that other people miss. We are sensitive to it. And I think this gives us a picture of really what, what Torah is all about. We're asking for guidance. We're in this world and we're confused. It's a, it's an opaque world. It's a world where there's so many different forces and elements swirling about. And we don't really know how to, how to live life. What kind of life should we live? How do I make the most of my time here? And we ask the Almighty, show us what to do. Give us the laws, but not just laws and let me live my life. And I'll follow, I'll be, I'll be conforming to those laws. Everything that I do, I want it to be influenced. I want it to be directed. I want it to be guided by you. I want it to have this permeate my entire identity. And I want to become an expert in what? In the eternal and spiritual matters of the soul. That's what we signed up for. Moshe's pitch was about that. And 3,300 years later, the dream of Sinai yet endures. I thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. This was a little bit of a different feel to it. But I think that's uh, deserving of it. It's the parasha about, about the Torah. This is when we got it all. This is where it all started. And hopefully we emerged with a greater appreciation of the great gift that we have. Have an incredible and wonderful and splendid rest of your day. Have a fine week. Have a terrific, peaceful, uplifting, and invigorating Shabbos upcoming. And please, God, with help the money, we'll talk again next week. In good health and in great spirits. And as always, my email address is Rabbi Walby at gmail.com.